Today is our first look at volume four of Genesis. We're taking it in four volumes, and this is the first step into volume four, which we'll be subtitling as God's sovereign plan for his people. God's sovereign plan for his people. Now, God is sovereign, and the whole book of Genesis, by the way, is uh, as much as it it gives us a few small answers to the origin of the universe and the origin of the nations and languages and stuff like that. That's not what it's really about. It's about the beginning of God's people. And so uh, when, we, when we see what God is doing through the book, you know, it, the book doesn't end after telling you how the universe began because that wasn't the point. The book ends after he tells you how God's people began. God is sovereign and he is sovereignly bringing about a people called out from, set apart from the world, who live by faith for his own glory. And when we say he's sovereign, it means that he's in absolute control. Nothing is impossible for him, nothing overwhelms him, nothing foils him, nothing thwarts his plans, uh, nothing undoes what he has set uh, forward in his mind. People make decisions throughout Uh, throughout history, throughout the book of Genesis, people even make evil decisions, and God lets them. It's not that there's no choice, it's simply that even though people make their own decisions, and even their own evil decisions, and God lets them make these evil decisions, yet still somehow, God's will is accomplished. He is still in control. Sometimes it's by miraculous intervention that he'll break the laws, the natural laws of nature uh, in order to, you know, to bring something about. And at other times, it's just his providence. It's just his genius at work where he allows the natural order to still spin out the way that it does and it accomplishes what he has set out to do. God does not control us with this mind control power to, uh, to override our own agency. We make our own choices and we're held responsible for those choices. And yet his will is accomplished. He is in control, he is sovereign. And we've seen that theme come up again and again in the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which are the forefathers of the the people of Israel. We'll see it again come up in the stories about Jacob's sons. None of the characters we meet are very good people at all. They're, they're not worthy, none are righteous, no one seeks God, no, not one. All of them are sinful, all of them fall short, and yet God calls these sinners to repent and to follow him. He's building a people for himself, set apart from the world, who live by faith in him, by his grace, not by their merit. And we've seen God protect these guys through some serious situations, if you've been tracking with us. If you haven't, you're just going to have to go back and listen to all those recordings. But if you have been with us, you know that God has been walking through all these these different obstacles, overcoming every every little moment that might have threatened their faith, every little moment that might have threatened their safety, all that kind of stuff. How many times did someone try to take Abraham's wife or Isaac's wife because they were lying, you know, saying, oh, this is my sister? How many times did someone try to do that? And how many times did God deliver How many kings were defeated for kidnapping Abraham's nephew? How many cities burned down for their wickedness? How many times did the terror of God fall on the rulers and on the towns that were just surrounding God's little family here? How many times was the hand of God holding back the power of the world? Is there anything too hard 
for El Shaddai, for God Almighty. The author of Genesis has convinced us by this point, no, there is nothing too hard for the Lord our God. So today as we start volume four, we'll see two characters in particular, Joseph and Judah, and these are the two uh, prominent sons of Jacob, or sons of Israel. Jacob, by the way, gets the name Israel. So when you say Jacob or Israel, they're the same guy. Israel's his new name, his name given by God. We'll see two characters, Joseph and Judah, who are sons of Israel, and they, uh, they are more prominent than the other, the other sons in these stories. The author focuses on these two guys. Uh, and these guys get into seemingly insurmountable problems. Uh, as we get into it today, by the way, this is, like I said, the first step into volume four. And so we're just going to go like, all right, here's Joseph, here's Judah, here are some problems. We're out of time. Let's close in prayer. That's how it's going to go. Okay. You should be mentally prepared for that. Cause at the end, if you're like, well, what's the moral of the story? You won't have one. We've, we're going to introduce the problems and then we're going to call it a day. That's how we're going to be faithful to the text. Okay. Um, we're going to be far from the conclusion uh, of, of all these issues then. So by starting these discussions, uh, keep in mind that the author has already assured us that nothing is impossible for God and the sovereign hand of God Almighty will prevail. You, you should know that because as we walk into these stories, it shouldn't be a question of will God see these guys through? We should know that by now. So... God's going to take the 12 sons of Jacob, the, the, the house of Israel, and by his sovereign power, he's going to turn them into his own people, the people of God. And that's, that's what we're going to start on, the story today, these 12 sons, right? Um, we're going to take it in four parts. Part number one is Joseph, the son of Jacob. Joseph, the son of Jacob. That's going to be chapter 37, verses 1 through 4. Part two will be Joseph, the dreamer where that'll be verses five through 11. Part three will have two titles. It'll be Joseph the captive and Judah the not good. And I phrased it that way on purpose. Judah the not good. Joseph the captive and Judah the not good. That'll be the rest of chapter 37, verses 12 through 36, okay? And then our fourth part will be Judah the not righteous, Judah, the not righteous. And I phrased it that way on purpose. That'll be all of chapter 38. I think that's 30 verses, one through 30. All right, let's start with Joseph, the son of Jacob in, uh, in chapter 37, verses one through four. Just the first verse, actually, if you look at it, uh, and the first part of the second verse, it says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob, or this is the record of Jacob, Jacob's family in particular. Now, that verse there, the, the first verse, is, uh, is a closer to volume three and kind of an intro to volume four. And the volumes, by the way, are artificial distinctions. That's, that's me separating Genesis into four volumes. Uh, the author didn't do that, but I'm just letting you know. Jacob lived in the land that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, like, this is the promised land. It has not yet been given to them historically all the way up to this point right now in, in the current timeline, 2021. They still have not received the land, uh, and yet it is promised to them. Now, specifically, Jacob lived in Be'er Lahai Roy, if you, uh, if 
if you check back in chapter 25, verses 11 through 12. Uh, and, uh, and he continued to sojourn there. He's wandering around like a foreigner, which happens to be the designation given to all of God's people. They are wanderers. They are foreigners, aliens and strangers in this world. You can see that uh, in, with Israel. That's why they have like certain feasts, where they, a feast of booths where they live in tents and stuff for a while to remember that we're, we don't belong here. We, we are wanderers. We're foreigners. This is not our world. We're set apart. And even in the New Testament, when you come to Christ, which is really what everything's about, you too are an alien, a stranger in this world, a holy nation, a set-apart nation, 1 Peter 1 and 2. In any case, the land of Canaan was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's going to be a huge point by uh, chapter 50, the end of the book, where it, you know, this, this land being promised is then promised to the 12 sons. Verse 2 says these are the generations of Jacob, or this is the record of Jacob, and it's going to be about his sons, and the, the story of Jacob specifically is kind of done. We're kind of done learning about the guy Jacob, uh, and we're, we're really going to focus in on Joseph and Judah. Um, and the, the, these two sons we're going to pay, for, uh, pay attention to for basically the rest of the book. Look at the rest of uh, verse 2 all the way through 4. It says, Joseph being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of, of uh, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Israel meaning Jacob, Jacob or Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he was the son that was born in his old age. And Jacob made Joseph a robe of many colors. But when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Okay, stop there. Here then is the introduction to Joseph. He's one of the youngest sons of Jacob. Only Benjamin is younger than him. Okay, uh, he's 17 at this point. He's a shepherd, just like his dad. And he's very young compared to the rest of his brothers, except Benjamin. His brothers are like older adults, and he is still a young, uh, a young lad is kind of the way that the, the, word, uh, the word boy, a young lad, okay? Uh, Jacob loved Joseph the most. And whenever you have dad liking one of the sons more than everyone else, that causes problems, okay? Uh, don't raise your hand to this question, but in your mind, ask yourself, did your parents favor one son or, 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 sorry, favor one child or treat one child better than the rest? How did that pan out? Was everyone like, oh, I'm so happy for, for the favored child? Is, is that what worked? It never goes that way. Joseph is, uh, is the firstborn from, from his mom named Rachel. And Jacob had, had four different wives. He had uh, Leah and Rachel and then Bilhah and Zilpah. And so Rachel had, had two biological sons, and that was Joseph and Benjamin. Okay, uh, be, Because Jacob loved his wife Rachel more than anyone else, he loved her firstborn son, Joseph, more than anyone else. And you'd think he'd know better, by the way. He grew up in a family. With, he had a twin brother, Esau, and his dad loved Esau more than Jacob. 
So he saw the favoritism, and he knows how that wrecked the family and stuff like that. He knows. You'd think he'd learn from that, but he does the same thing, because like father, like son, uh, the sins of the parents are oftentimes passed on to the children. And the text says that Jacob gives Joseph this robe of many colors, which might just mean a long-sleeved robe that goes all the way to the hand and to the foot. It's hard to translate that word. It's either many-colored or long-sleeved. I don't know how... I don't know how that gets mixed up, but that's how it is in Hebrew. Either way, it's a fancy robe. And the reason why, uh, why it says that he gets his fancy robe is because uh, he's a shepherd, right? And all the, other, all the other sons are shepherds, right? Shepherds, they walk out into the field and they deal with the sheep and, and they deal with you know, all the, the pasture and, and the dung and the, and the food and the, everything. They're always out there. Do you wear fancy clothes when you go out into the field? If you're a shepherd, do you wear a tuxedo? Of course not. And yet that's what Joseph is given. He's given this tuxedo. He, get, he gets this, this technicolor dream coat that he walks out in, uh, which means he is now treated as management, not as labor. He gets the fancy clothes because he gets treated special. And you're going to see that. He gets treated uh, nice and special, right? So this robe of many colors, or which can also mean a long-sleeved robe. It's used that way in 2 Samuel 13, verses 18 and 19. Either way, this fancy robe meant that he didn't have to do the stuff that the rest of the brothers did. So that's even better for Joseph. You can imagine how that makes the brothers feel. They hate him. They hate him for a special treatment. They hate him for his fancy robe. On top of that, he brings a bad report about them. A bad report, which means an evil report. The word bad and evil are the same thing in, in, in Hebrew. Ra, that's the word. He told on them. And you can be like, oh, see, there's his character flaw. He's a narc. You know, this, this guy's a tattletale. He, just, he goes and he tells them. That's not necessarily a sin, you know? So he didn't do anything wrong. But you can just see how that enhances how much they hate him. It does tell you that they're bad guys, right? Like the, the reason why there's an evil report about them is because they did evil, right? You get, you, so you're, you're blaming the wrong guy here, okay? Joseph, Joseph is one of two characters in the Bible that, that nothing bad is said about him, actually. Daniel would be the other one. He's one of two guys in the Old Testament, the two main character guys, that, uh, that only good things are really said about him. And here, only good things are really said about him, nothing really bad. Yeah, he tells on his brothers, that's not actually a bad thing. He gives a report, the report is accurate and true, it's just, it wasn't, it wasn't all that smart of him because that's incurring his brother's wrath. So he should have found a, I don't know, a better way to go about this, I don't know. But you know that the, his brothers are bad guys, they're, they're evil. They do, some, they do wrong stuff. Joseph reports that, and the, it intensifies their hatred of him. That is Joseph, the son of Jacob. Let's look then at him, not just as the son of Jacob, the favored son, but as Joseph the dreamer. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So you get the, the thesis right up front, right? He had a dream, told it to his brothers, they hated him more. Verse 6. He said to them, Oh, hear this dream that I have had. <laughs> hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? 
Or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. I think that's very understandable, right? Uh, uh, His dream is simple. He just dreams that someday his brothers will bow down to him and he will rule over them. He's like, I'm like your king. I'm not just dad's favorite. I'm going to be like king over you guys. You will bow to me. And he's like the second youngest, okay? He's 17. Some of these guys are like, I don't know, 40-something. Let's pretend, right? Just you go ahead and imagine. Let me pull someone from toddler service right now. Bring him out here and just have Owen be like, you will bow to me. You know, just let's have that happen and see, see how much you're like, oh, that's so cute. At this point, the, the other brothers, they're not like, well, he had a dream. Is it true? Do you think it's going to happen? Do you think it's true? They're not doing that. We're doing that because we're reading Bible, you know? But for them, they're not like, wow, he had a dream. Do you think it's going to happen? They're like, we're going to kill this kid. We will murder him. That's what they're thinking. He's, he seems spoiled. He seems arrogant. He seems obnoxious. Little piece of garbage, I hate you. You know, that's what's going on in their heads. And so if you're the original audience, if you're the original audience, which is Israel, way back in like 1500 BC when Moses writes this to them, right? You think the eldest son of the family is always the greatest. That's the mentality. The eldest son is the greatest. But if you remember the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, the three eldest sons screwed up, right? Because... the first eldest, the, the, the very eldest, Reuben, he slept with his dad's wife, so that's not okay, and he kind of disgraced himself, so he's not allowed to be, like, the best one in the family. And then Simeon and Levi, you know, they uh, committed genocide, so that's kind of disqualifying, too. They're not, like, the honorable ones in the family. So you have the three eldest sons disqualified. So then, in the original reader's mind, you'd say, oh, who's number four then? And so number four would be this guy, Judah. Son number four is Judah. He is now the prominent son of the family. He should be. And yet, instead, you get this young upstart, Joseph, that dad loves the most, being bowed down to. And so now it should bring up in our minds, if we were the original readers, well, who is greater, Judah or Joseph? Judah is next in line. Joseph is the favored one. Well, Joseph continues to have dreams, verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers, because that seems like such a good idea, right? He dreamed another dream, told it to his brothers, and he said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. They were jealous. Now, it's an interesting word because there seems to be in their minds almost the concession or the admission that there's something divinely inspired by this dream. They're jealous of that dream. They're like, I wish I had that dream. 
That's weird, because for us, you know, I, I dream about all sorts of weird things, right? And all of a sudden, I'm building a go-kart with my landlord. Like, it doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Dreams don't make sense to us. But back then, dreams were a big deal. It was like this, this thing that God was trying to hint at for you. And so they're like, how come he gets these dreams? And they're jealous of him. And his father, Jacob, has had dreams. He's had dreams where God showed him a stairway to heaven, a ladder or a stairway to heaven, and, you know, this big moment and stuff. So he knows that God speaks in dreams. And so he kept it in mind. But he is also outraged. He's like, what, you think mom and I are going to bow down to you? You think your brother's going to bow down to you? Really? You think I'm going to bow down to you, my son? So the second dream is like the first, except this time it involves his parents also bowing down. How is his mom going to bow down if she's already passed away? She passed away giving birth to Benjamin. So it's probably not, uh, it's not being interpreted as an event so much as it is a status. That Joseph will be greater and all the house of Israel will kind of bow down to him or, or honor him in some way. Or it could just be talking about one of the other moms, one of the other wives of his dad uh, being a surrogate mom. It doesn't matter. This imagery of the sun and moon and the 12 stars, or 11 bowing down to, to Joseph, this, this imagery is used in Revelation 12 as the house of Israel. You know, if you uh, go to the Revelation series if you want to hear about that. I don't have time for it, right? But this second dream is like the first dream. It's the same dream, you know? Why have it twice? Right? Let me tell you this first dream. Let me tell you this second dream. They're the same picture. Why have the same dream twice? It's the same idea. In fact, uh, Joseph's stories will have other characters who have dreams, and the dreams will always come in pairs. Why? Well, our, our only answer really comes from chapter 41, verse 32, which happens to say that God, uh, when he gives someone two very similar dreams, uh, he gives two dreams because God has firmly decided on it. It is fixed by God, is the way that it says it. Like God has fixed it. He's, he's fastened it. It is secure. This is the way it's going to be. There's no changing it. It is firmly decided. Now, I think it's interesting that Joseph doesn't mention God at all when he speaks about his dreams. He just reports about the dreams. He doesn't say whom they came from. And unlike Jacob, who had dreams and knew that those dreams came from God, Joseph doesn't seem to mention that. He's receiving dreams from God, but there's no evidence that he trusts in God. Not yet, anyway. That is Joseph the dreamer. Now let's move to Joseph the captive, which is the rest of the chapter. Joseph the captive, and we'll get a good look at Judah, who is not good. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, aren't your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And Joseph says, here I am. What do you want me to do? So Jacob says to Joseph, he says, go now. See if everything's okay with your brothers and with the flock. And then bring me word. Give me a report. So he sent him from the, the valley of Hebron and, uh, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering around in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? Verse 16, Joseph says, I am seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, oh, they, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Stop there for a sec. This is a tame beginning to the story. The brothers are shepherding in Shechem. And then Jacob sends Joseph to go check on them. 
right? Dad sends favorite son who doesn't have to do the shepherding work anymore. He's got the fancy suit. He says, you go check on them and then bring me back a report. I want to know what's going on. You, you tell me if they're doing something weird. That tells you maybe they need to be checked on. You know, maybe they're, they're bad guys, right? Or maybe it's just loving concern from dad. He's like, make sure everything's okay. Let me know if they're doing all right. It could go either way. But it turns out they're doing something bad, right? They're not at Shechem. They're at Dothan. Now, Shechem, big, you know, farm area and stuff. Dothan, trade city next to a busy road. It's got a fortress, a strong wall. It is the Las Vegas of their of their time and, and place. That's their Las Vegas. So sure, they went and fed the, the sheep and stuff over at Shechem, and then they, they, they took off and they went to Dothan. They're like, hey, let's go do whatever at Dothan. So they go to Dothan, and they're hanging out there. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, here's, here's Joseph. He's at Shechem. He's wandering around. He's like, where are these guys? Right? Shechem is five days' journey from where he started in the Valley of Hebron. It's a five days' journey. He went north. Dothan is only two days' journey north. So, you know, the brothers went five days up, and then they, uh, they fed their flocks and everything, and they, they moved three days down. And so Joseph is up at Shechem. He's like, where are these guys? He can't find anything. And uh, luckily, he meets a man who's like, hey, what are you looking for? And Joseph goes, my brothers. And the man's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not here. They went to Dothan. I, heard, I overheard them. So coincidentally, this guy overhears where, you know, he overhears what happened with these brothers and where they went and all that stuff. It's very, very convenient, which is random and interesting. Pay attention to the next, uh, to the three verbs in this next verse, okay? Verse 18, they saw him from afar. So they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They saw him from afar. They conspired against him to kill him. Verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Good one, you guys. You really got him, right? Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Now, those three verbs, okay? They saw him from afar. They conspired against him to kill, uh, to kill him. Saw, conspired, kill. Uh, for, for right now, all we can do is realize that these brothers hate Joseph so much that they want to murder him, okay? It's intense hatred, but it's all motivated by how he was the favored son. He was treated special. He got a nice robe. He had dreams, and, and they wanted those dreams. They, they felt like there was something to those dreams, they say they want to kill him. They want to throw him in a pit. They say they want to say a fierce animal ate him, and we'll see what becomes of his dreams, all that. You can hear how laced with hatred it is, and they, don't, they didn't understand that these dreams are going to come true by the sovereign hand of God. They didn't think about that. None of them took it as a, uh, as a reason to trust in God or to, to have high hopes for their brother Joseph. They took it as a reason to hate him. But those three verbs, saw, conspired, kill, that's a setup by the author who will come back to those three verbs in chapter 42, verses 7 and 20, and he's going to use those verbs again in the same way to provide this intentional symmetry, a rhyme of the story that will come back ironically. So just have those in mind, and like four weeks from now or so, I'll bring it up again, and we'll talk about saw, conspired, and killed, okay? Okay.
Anyway, they want to kill him. They want to throw him in one of the pits. I can relate. I have two older brothers. Archaeologists discovered in Dothan uh, that there were two cisterns, which is just gigantic pits that can hold up to like 250,000 gallons of, of water. It's just pits into the ground, the holes in the ground that they would uh, either carve out of limestone or they'd dig a hole and then plaster the sides because they didn't have running water. So they had to collect rainwater. It only rained three or four months uh, uh, out of the year. So they had to collect it and use that for the rest of the year. During the summer, it was not uncommon for those pits to have dried up. So they're like, let's kill them and throw them in one of the pits because there were two pits in Dothan. So they're like, you know, we can pick which one, which, which pit you want to throw them in, or which one's deeper, whichever. Verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he's the oldest one, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Why did he say that? Well, it says that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Okay. Why, why was Reuben merciful to Joseph? Right? He rescued Joseph out of their hand. He's a hero. He's a hero. Why? I think... I think there, there's a lot to it. Um, you know how like all the 11 brothers, they're all being represented as like one character, one motive. They all just speak at the same time. It's like the old Chinese Kung Fu movies where like whenever there's a crowd, they all speak at the same time. They say the same thing somehow in unison. You know, they all just, it's like 30 people on the screen, but it's really just one character, you know? That's kind of how it is. These, these brothers, the 11 brothers are being represented almost as like just, it's very mono- monotone, you know? There's just one, one sound to them, one voice to them. But it's possible that they had variations of motivation. And it seems like Reuben is not as bloodthirsty as mm, Simeon and Levi, right? I mean, those guys, they're a little over the top. But Reuben? I mean, he has a thing for the ladies, it seems like. But it, he doesn't seem as bloodthirsty. He doesn't seem as... Uh, as driven by violence. So I'm going to guess that Simeon and Levi had the, you know, they're spearheading the, the whole murder plot. They have a record of that in chapter 34. But, um, but if you think about it, Reuben is the oldest son of Israel. So he would be held responsible for this, right? Who, who's going to take the blame when Younger brother died. Who do you blame? You're, gonna, you're not going to be like, okay, whose idea was it? You just go to the oldest brother, the oldest son, and you say, why'd you let this happen? You know, you're, you're supposed to be in charge. Why didn't you take care of this? That's, that's what would happen. Not only that, but Reuben is already kind of out of favor with his dad because he slept with his dad's wife. And so if he also lets Joseph just die... Like, he, he really loses his standing in the family. He's really a disgrace. He just, he sucks at life. Verse 25. And then they sat down to eat, because that's what you do after you try to murder your brother. You're like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm hungry, right? So they sit down to eat. They're, look how normal this is to them. Look how okay they are with everything, right? They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. 
And then Judah, let's pay attention to Judah. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew, they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So what's going on is a group of tradesmen approaches. Uh, the tradesmen seem to be made up of Ishmaelites and Midianites and even Medanites, but uh, they, they approach. Uh, that's, that's normal because you're at Dothan, big trading city on a busy route. The... Uh, uh, the peoples that are named here, by the way, Ishmaelites, are uh, from Abraham and Hagar. They had a son, Ishmael, and Ishmaelites came from that. Uh, Midianites came from Abraham and Keturah. So did Medanites. Medanites and Midianites came from Abraham and Keturah. So these are all kind of like cousin peoples to the Israelites, which come from Abraham and Sarah. Judah whom we're going to pay a lot more attention to in chapter 38, he suggests, let's sell Joseph instead of murdering him. Because then, you know, he's our flesh and blood. We care about him. So let's just sell him into slavery. And, let, you know, because there's no profit in murder, but there is profit in selling him into, into slavery. So let's do that. And uh, it seems that even though all 11 brothers hate Joseph, not all 11 brothers want to murder him necessarily, but they just want him to be miserable and out of their lives. Was he trying to spare Joseph's life? Was he trying to save him? Or is he just trying to profit? Is he a good guy? Where he's like, hey, let's, let's sell him so that he lives. Is, is he working with good intentions? Or is, is he like, ah, forget it. Let's just profit off of this. Sell him into slavery, and then that'll be hilarious what happens to him. And we'll have money. Is he a bad guy? Personally, I think he's a bad guy. And I think that we have warrant for that textually. He's, sure, he spares Joseph's life in this way, but he sells him into slavery. That's just not a good thing to do. Uh, he doesn't defend Joseph, and he doesn't say, this is wrong, my brothers. He says, let's at least profit from this, right? That, that's the only, the only context we have, and we have no reason not to take him at his word. So his motive seems to be greed, not heroism. This is the first of three moments where Judah will speak and persuade people. And our only clue on this first one is that he's evil. He's bad. That's it. In chapter 8, we'll see something where he admits his badness. And then in chapter 43, we'll see him say something good. So I think what you have here is a little miniature character arc. You see him as a bad guy right from the beginning. Think about it this way. Uh, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi have all disqualified themselves for the birthright, for the inheritance. The three oldest sons have disqualified themselves, right? When, uh, when Jacob dies, who's supposed to get the birthright then? Who's supposed to get the inheritance? Well, it should be Judah, the fourth son, or 
at this point, maybe Jacob might just choose a different son. He's like, oh, the first three are all, you know, they're all disqualified. So I'm just going to choose a son. So it's either going to be Judah or it's going to be Joseph, right? That's the tension. And we actually find out that, that Jacob did choose Joseph. Joseph was intended to receive the inheritance. If you don't believe me, I had to dig into 1 Chronicles 5. This is what it says, 1 Chronicles 5, verse 1. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, because he, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the, sons of, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from them, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So in terms of the tension between Judah and Joseph, Jacob had made a decision. Dad decided, I'm going to give it to Joseph. He will be the, the one that gets the birthright, the inheritance. So for Judah, if he knows this, then it would be in his best interest to get rid of Joseph. And if Joseph is either murdered or sold into slavery in Egypt or whatever, if they, if they just tell dad, you're, you know, Joseph is dead, then who gets the birthright? Who gets the inheritance? Judah. All right. They sell Joseph for 20 shekels. Uh, that's two years wages for a shepherd. It's not a big deal. This family is like filthy rich. So the two years wages split among 11 brothers. Not, it's not going to... They're not really motivated by the money. They just hate Joseph, okay? Verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. So apparently Reuben didn't know this, this decision was made. He didn't know that this was decided on. Verse 30. And he returned to his brothers and he said, the, uh, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father. And they said, uh, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. Apparently, he has multiple daughters. We don't know who they are. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Okay, so ends our first look at Joseph, the son of Jacob, the dreamer, the captive. He was beloved by his father. He was hated by his brothers. He was bought by merchants, and he was sold to an Egyptian soldier uh, out in Egypt by the name of Potiphar. The story of Joseph becoming a slave in Egypt hauntingly foreshadows what happens to all the sons of Israel because all of them will eventually be enslaved to Egypt for 400 years. And God will raise up Moses to deliver them and, and write this book to them. There's more irony though. You know the sons, they, they, uh, they take the robe, they tear it up, and then they kill a goat and they dip it in the blood and then they bring it to the dad and they're like, Hey, whose is this? Is, is this Joseph's? You got to look at this and find out. And they used a goat to deceive their father, Jacob. And that's just weird because Jacob used a goat to deceive his father, 
Isaac. He put on the skins to be all hairy like his brother Esau and stuff, chapter 27. So you, you have a lot of these things coming back around to, to bite Jacob, you know, things from his past. And it's all coming back around again. There's, there's like a, uh, there was a poetry to it. Verse 36 is this weird little, uh, this, this weird little sentence that says that uh, Joseph's not out of our story. Just for right now, we're putting him on hold. Okay? He's, not, he's not written out of the narrative. More is yet to be said about him. Just hang on to him. He's, he's out in Egypt. We'll get back to him. So we get to then chapter 38, which is this interruption in the story of Joseph. And it's a story about Judah. Judah, the not righteous. Uh, chapter 38 interrupts. And, uh, let me just show you the very last verse of chapter 37 next to the very first verse of chapter 39, right? They just, they just link up, okay? So chapter seven, uh, 37, verse 36 says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him to Egypt and uh, to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Right? And then Genesis 39, verse 1, says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. So if you notice, they're the same sentence, right? Chapter 38 uh, then just kind of comes and plops down, interrupting what's going on. At the end of 37, at the beginning of 39, you have this interruption, chapter 38. Here's the interruption, uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib, when she bore him. Okay, so that's just part of the setup. Verse 1 says uh, that this is all happening at the same time as Joseph's story. Joseph's story will go from 39 through 44, you know, and toward the end of that is when Joseph and Judah will meet up again. So there, there's 22 years that, that span what's going on with Joseph and 22 years that span what's going on with Judah. This chapter takes up these 22 years, okay? Um, Judah apparently left his brothers, went down to his friend Hira, who's staying at Adullam. He meets a Canaanite woman. He marries her. He has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Okay? Now, this is a red flag. How hard did Abraham and Isaac and Jacob work to avoid marrying Canaanite women? How, how much effort was put to make sure they didn't marry a woman from a cursed people in the land that would be conquered and purged and given to the sons of Israel? Just think about that, right? They worked so hard not to marry Canaanites, and yet Judah leaves his brothers, and he goes down, and he marries a Canaanite. So this tells you he's not living in faith. He's not living uh, consistent with his fathers or even with his brothers. He left everything. He left that life, the set-apart life. And he went and he joined the world. We skip a few decades when, uh, when two of his sons are old enough to be married. Verse 6. Judah took a wife uh, for Ur, his firstborn. Right? He, he, he lets his firstborn get married because it's been 22 years or so. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. L-O-R-D capital letters. He was wicked in the sight of Yahweh. And Yahweh put him to death. 
How? We don't know. Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, he said, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give his brother, uh, not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of Yahweh, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, uh, his daughter-in-law, the, the widow, he says, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my, my third son, grows up. For he feared that Shelah would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Okay, this concept is really weird to us. It's very foreign because it's very different from our concept of marriage and of family and of relationship even, right? Uh, that's not what our society kind of does with, with uh, marriage and family and relationship. In these ancient times, if, if a guy died and he had no kids, then the next oldest brother was supposed to go and have kids with his wife, supposed to marry uh, the widow and have kids, and those kids would legally belong to the dead man to, in order to propagate the, uh, that man's family line. That's called leveret marriage. That's what the book of Ruth is kind of about. Um, so you, you go to the, the oldest brother in the family, and if there's no brother, then you go to the, the next closest male relative. So that's how that would work. The point of it was to ensure the families don't die out, but they could, uh, the family line could survive even in the event of, uh, of a patriarch's death. So son number one dies childless, leaving Tamar a widow. Son number two refuses to actually conceive children with her, and so God kills him too. And so Tamar is now double widow. And if, if someone is very prone to being a widow in that time, it became very easy to accuse them of witchcraft. Like, you're doing this. You're killing all these guys, etc. Uh, Judah then is afraid that Shelah, if he gives Shelah to Tamar, Shelah will die also. So uh, he might be wondering, is, is Tamar a witch? Maybe he thinks that, but there's no mention of that. So it's more likely... He's thinking that he's being punished for what he did to Joseph. That's not in the text. I'm guessing on that, okay? He might be just thinking, God keeps killing my sons. I don't want to give my third son to Tamar. That, it seems like this is a punishment for what I did to Joseph. And so uh, he refuses to give the third son, which is his obligation in order to continue on his own family line. His first son, Ur, died, and he needs more sons to propagate the family line, but he's not doing it. All right, verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, so his, his wife died, Judah's wife died. When he was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adelamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garments and she covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is, the road, uh, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Right? Like Shelah was now old enough to marry her and have children with her for uh, for the deceased brother, but wasn't happening. So she's, she's like, okay, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. 
He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, I'll give you a young goat from the flock. She goes, Okay, well, you don't seem to have your young goat with you. So if you give me a pledge until you send it, right? You don't have your young goat. How do I know you're going to keep your promise? So give me a pledge. Um, Verse 18. What pledge shall I give you? He asked her, and she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So these three things, they're, they're very identifying. They're, you know, this is very much your personal belongings. So she's basically like, give me your driver's license. Give me your driver's license. Like, it's very unmistakable. This is yours, you know. Give me your driver's license. So he gave his driver's license to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Now, here, Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute to get Judah to have a child with her because Judah would not give the third son, Shelah, to her. And her duty was, I, I have to do my, my job as a wife. I have to do my, my job as a, uh, to be a mother. Now, is that okay, what she did? Of course not. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Tamar, this whole family is full of liars, and it's never Okay. It feels a lot like Jacob's deception on his father in chapter 27, where he disguises himself as Esau to obtain a blessing. Well, here's Tamar disguising herself as a prostitute to, uh, to obtain a child. And the author is not, is not uh, writing this to judge the, the lying and stuff. He, he, it's not, he's not focusing on that. He's just showing that the only person trying to help the family is Tamar. Tamar's the hero in the story. Judah is the villain. Right? You notice Judah is the one that's, that's not doing his job. He's the bad guy. He's not good. Tamar is the only one that's trying to make sure this family doesn't die out. She's the only one that takes her, her, her role seriously. She's the hero in the story. And she's not even an Israelite, by the way, as far as we know. We don't know what, what ethnicity she is, but she doesn't seem to be a Canaanite. And we, it doesn't seem to be an Israelite either. So this is to Judah's shame. She's a, uh, he's a bad guy. He's not a good brother. He's not a good believer. And he isn't even a good father. He fails in every respect. Well, he promises to pay Tamar. Uh, well, he promises to pay what he thinks is a prostitute, but it's Tamar. He, he pr- promises this prostitute a, a goat. And since he doesn't have it, he's like, okay, I'll, I'll leave you my driver's license. Uh, and then, uh, you know, when I send you the goat, you give me back the driver's license. It's just a pledge. It's a, it's a little, like, down payment deposit thing, right? Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he couldn't find her. And the friend, that's Hira, the Adolamite, the friend asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who is at a name at the roadside? And they said, huh? No cult prostitute has been here. So Hira, the friend, he he returned to Judah, and he's like, I I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said there was no cult prostitute that's ever been there. So Judah replied, okay, fine, fine, fine. Let her keep the things as her own, or else we shall be laughed at. You see, I, I sent this young goat. You didn't find her. Okay, just forget it. She's got my driver's license. Let's not make an issue of this or else people will find out what's going on. Let's just let it go away. So he's pretending nothing happened. He's covering up his foolishness. He's covering up his sin in order to save his dignity. That's worse. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, "Uh, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. 
And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned for her immorality. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff, the driver's license, right? So plot twist, when people discover three months later that Tamar is pregnant, because now it's start, starting to be more empirically noticeable, the word gets to Judah and Judah's like, okay, kill her, because you know, this filthy, immoral person in my family, like, of course, kill her. She has, uh, she, she has failed our family. But she's like, okay, well, you're all going to kill me, but the guy who owns this driver's license, that's the father of the baby. That's the one who got me pregnant. And everyone looks at it and they're like, uh, Judah, that's your driver's license, right? But look at how she says it. She's like, you tell me whose this is. Please identify whose these are. Right? It's, it's, it's the same thing. Just like Judah and, and, the, uh, and all his brothers went up to their dad and said, whose coat is this? Why don't you tell us whose coat this is? And, and if it's, is it Joseph's? Is it, you tell us. And they made dad look at it and go, oh yeah, this is Joseph's. My son is dead. Well, here's Tamar going, okay, whose driver's license is this? You tell me. And she goes to her father-in-law, her dad-in-law, and says, you tell me. And he looks at it. How does he respond? Verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I didn't give her to my son Shelah. And he didn't know her again. He didn't sleep with her again. Judah's reaction vindicates Tamar. He says, She is more righteous than I. Now, here's the thing. Judah's not even a righteous guy. So, you know, that, it's, that's not a, a real workable thing to say. But you can translate the same word righteous as innocent. She is more innocent than I. We've both done wrong things, but I'm worse than she is. So really what you get is a confession. You get a confession like, I am a worse person than she is. Yeah, she did something wrong by d d dressing up like a prostitute and all that stuff. But she's, she's not nearly as guilty as I am. She's more innocent than, than me. She's more righteous than I. That's what he says. Judah has been humiliated, and instead of freaking out, his response is confessional and repentant. He doesn't kill her. He commends her. This is that second of three moments where Judah persuades people. Here he's persuading people, let's not kill Tamar. He's bad in the first one. In the second one, he's admitting that he's bad, that he's not good, that he's not righteous. Verse 27, you get this epilogue. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one of the twins put out a hand. And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread around his hand, saying, this one came out first. So this one should be the firstborn, yes? Right? Okay. Verse 29. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Then, therefore, his name was called Perez, which means like, what a breach. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Okay. You realize Zerah is the firstborn, because his hand came out. So it's like dibs right? They tie the scarlet thread, hand goes back in, and then 
Perez is like, yoink, I'm the firstborn now. Right? So the secondborn becomes the firstborn. And so you get another one of these reversals where the, the younger overthrows the older. Like Jacob is, uh, is, is uh, blessed over Esau. You get another one of these reversals. It's a bit of a foreshadow because Judah is older than Joseph, right? But Joseph will be the prominent one in this book. Joseph will be the, uh, the younger, and yet he too will just, yoink, I'm in charge now. Guess what? You all bow down to me, right? That's what's going to happen. So Judah's family line is continued. From Tamar comes Perez. Perez will be an ancestor to Boaz, if you look at Ruth 4.18. Ultimately, that means you can go from Judah to Perez to Boaz to King David to Jesus, so you have the, the line of Judah. You have, you have all these little these moments where, you know, people in the family line, you can connect those dots. Now, the original audience didn't know who Jesus was yet, you know, so we're not there yet. But this chapter showed that the line of Judah almost came to an end. But by some crazy story, the line continues. And that line will continue to the Messiah. And Genesis will eventually tell us that the Messiah will come from this line of Judah. It almost, the, the line of Judah almost came to an end, but it didn't. And what's even more uh, peculiar is that Judah's sons, they were half Canaanite, weren't they? They were all, his sons were half Canaanite. Ur, Onan, and Shelah were all half Canaanite because Judah married a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, right? So that means that if, if those sons had children to continue the line of Judah, then the line would be contaminated by Canaanite blood, cursed blood. But instead, the first son marries Tamar. We don't know what, what she is ethnically, but she's not specified as a Canaanite. Everyone that's a Canaanite is always specified as a Canaanite. Tamar, she's not ethnically identified, okay? Tamar's not a Canaanite. But her, the three sons are half Canaanite. So, you know, ha trying to have sons with them doesn't work out. So what happens? Judah, she tricks Judah and conceives by Judah. There is now no Canaanite blood in the line of Judah. It tells you that the line of Judah dodged the curse. And that's going to be important for, for you to know when you get to Jesus, because that's a, an important object lesson to tell you that Jesus does not bear the curse of sin from Adam, that Jesus himself is not cursed, right? That's why he's born of a virgin. He doesn't come from the seed of a man. Well, that's, that's kind of the end of the, the passage, right? You're, <laughs> Look, here are the problems. Listen, we're out of time. Let's close in prayer, right? That's what I said. Look, the, the, these chapters set up for us the story of Joseph and Judah and, and, and all their brothers. But don't miss the fact that this is the story of God at work. Isn't it peculiar that, that God is not explicitly identified as acting in any of these moments? You don't see a, a, the author narrating to us that God did this or God did that. He, he doesn't say that. But the sovereign hand of God is felt on Joseph's story and on Judah's story when you, when you sit down and watch what happens. Who gives Joseph his dreams, which will end up coming true? God. Who orchestrated Joseph's wandering to coincidentally encounter a man who happened to see the brothers and overhear where they were going? 
so that that guy could tell Joseph where to go. God did that. Who protected the line of Judah from Canaanite corruption this early in the establishment of the family? God. Who deserved any of this? Neither of them. Not Joseph, not Judah. But who does God have plans for? Both of them. Joseph and Judah. It will not be a question of Will God see them through? Not at this point. The author has shown you by the track record of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God sees his people through. So the question is not will God see them through. The question is how will God see them through? This is just the beginning of how God took the house of Israel and will make them into the nation, the people of God. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. God, you are way bigger than any story that we can tell. And we stand in awe of your sovereign hand, your miraculous power, your divine providence. We see that nothing can overpower you or overwhelm you or thwart you or foil you or undo you. You are God. We make our decisions, we make evil decisions even, and you let us, and it does not stop your will from being accomplished. And we thank you that you have invited us to be on the right side of your will by repenting of our sin and placing our trust in the Savior that will come from the line of Judah. And we pray, God, that as we walk through these chapters of Genesis, we would be amazed again and again at how no matter how unworthy these guys are, you alone are worthy. That no one really in the Bible is ever a hero. No one's really good until you come and pay for their sin and impute to them your righteousness, your goodness. That's not just, just the story of Genesis. That's the story of us too. We place our faith and trust in you and you alone. And we acknowledge that we are not worthy. And despite the fact that we've made evil decisions even, your will will be done. You will save those who trust in you. Whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish, but will have eternal life. We praise you as our God and Savior. And we pray that you would keep growing our faith planting us deep on the knowledge that you will see us through. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.